Today is a, a feast day, a day of celebration. And not only that, today is a feast day in the middle of a period of fasting, period of fast. Because we are, after all, still in uh, the period of Lent in the liturgical calendar. Now, if you've been coming to OIC for a while, you will know that this year we have been following the liturgical calendar more closely than usual. Uh, so the liturgical calendar is is a calendar that churches uh, around the world uh, and throughout a good chunk of history follow with some variations, but it's a cyclical calendar. Every year it starts again. Uh, and it's a calendar in which we go through different periods in which there's different theological emphasis, different celebrations. Uh, pretty much every church marks it to some extent. I mean, we do Christmas, we do Easter every year, right? Uh, but there's also these, these seasons, uh, the season preparing for, for Christmas. That's when the calendar starts. So the, the new year, uh, for, for the church is, is the beginning of Advent. And then the preparation for Christmas and we go into different seasons. And this year, this, uh, church year, I would call it, because we started in, in Advent last year. We decided in OIC that we wanted to just pay a bit closer attention to that. What's going on? What's the, what's the, what's the idea with these seasons? What's the theological focus? What are the things that we are remembering as a community of faith and why are we remembering them? And just trying to learn a bit from that, from that history and from what it has for us. Um, and the season of Lent, which is the season that we are in now, is a period that goes 40 days up to Easter. So counting back from Easter, 40 days. It's actually a bit more than 40 days because we don't count the Sundays, but I won't go into all of that. But about 40 days leading up to Easter, the season of Lent. Now, why 40 days? Uh, it is a, a, a memory. It has to do with a tradition that comes from the idea of the people of Israel being 40, day, 40 years sorry, in the desert. Right, in preparation for going into the promised land. And then we have Jesus going for 40 days into the wilderness and fasting and in preparation for his ministry. So it is a season of reflecting on the wilderness, right. of expectation, of maybe withdrawing from certain things, from comforts. And it is a tradition in many, in many communities of faith, not all of them, that during this time people will abstain from something. Abstain from alcohol, for example, abstain from meat as a way of reflecting on our deepest needs and of dealing with anticipation and preparing ourselves for the time of Easter and of celebrating the resurrection. In OIC, we have done, we, we, for years now, we have been doing these series of preachings, right? And this year, what our series are following this liturgical calendar. And for the Lent, we have called it uh, echoes. That's the name of our series. And we've been exploring a bit these dimensions and these experiences of wilderness in, in scriptures and in our lives. Different experiences of, of what it means to feel like you're in a wild place. <laughs> uh, in these dry places where it lacks resources or it lacks the basic things. And how does God speak to that? And there's different kinds of wilderness that we experience in the world. Yeah. But today, 
Today we are called out from the desert. Away from the desert and into the village. Today uh, in the liturgical calendar, uh, the colors on the altar change. And for those of you who tend to notice these things, we always have these uh, things on the altar here, and they have a color that follows the liturgical calendar. And actually, Lent is purple. Season of Lent uh, is purple. But today it changes to white. Purple is the color for the Advent and for the Lent. It, it is the color for expectation and waiting. White is a color of celebration, feast. It is the color for the Easter morning, for resurrection. And today the color on the altar is white. And we are called out from the desert into the village, into the home of young Mary as she receives news that will forever change her life and will forever change the world. Today is white because today the church celebrates what is called the Feast of Annunciation. Fancy name, right? The Feast of Annunciation. And I can give you a hint as to what the Feast of Annunciation celebrates by telling you that it happens about nine months before Christmas. Right? It's not that hard math, really. It's, it's the day in which the church remembers and celebrates the beginning of Mary's pregnancy. A pregnancy from which she would give birth to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So the name, Feast of Annunciation, it comes from how the gospel writer Luke tells the story. He's the only one that tells this particular part of the story, right? The different gospel writers uh, tell the story a bit differently. But Luke, uh, he tells us a story in which Mary's conception or the conception of Jesus in Mary is announced to her. And that's where the, the name Feast of Annunciation comes from. And the reasoning that this announcement, right, of the coming birth of the one who would be in the words of uh, of the angel in the Gospel of Luke, be great and call the Son of the Most High, the reasoning that this is a, a reason for celebration is not really that difficult in retrospect, right? Well, this is the annunciation of Jesus. Of Jesus who is the Savior, who is the Messiah, the miracle maker. <laughs> but even as we call this a feast, the feast of annunciation, I wonder... A feast for whom? Thinking about Mary, I wonder if this felt like breaking fast for a day of feast. Right? If it felt like coming out of the wilderness into a day of joy, or if it felt more like something the other way around. Like being thrown into the wilderness. Into the dry places into where it's rough and difficult to live. I want to read a story with you. And we find it in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a story that many of us have often read or heard around the time of Christmas, the time of Advent. Uh, and it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 uh, to 38, and I'm going to read it with you. And it says, 
In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her six months, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you says this messenger from God. And Mary is greatly troubled. And she has good reasons to be troubled. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, the messenger says, by way of affirmation and comfort and encouragement. What kind of favor is this? And does fear just subside like that because an angel said so? Now, I know many of us have done this before. I've done this before with you <laughs> uh, a couple of times when we read this text around Christmas. But can we again stop and consider what this annunciation meant for Mary? What it meant for a young girl to find herself pregnant, not only out of wedlock, but while she was promised in marriage, a promise which wasn't just a promise, was a legal binding contract in the context to a man who was not the father of this child. Can we consider just how difficult and messy, that is. Considering Mary's geographical location and social status and surrounding by all that we know, by the region that she lived in, uh, there's, by all we know, Mary's prospects for life by our standards were really not that great. She was a poor girl. She was already going to marry this guy, have kids. That, that's it. There's like not much 
prospects otherwise. She was not wealthy. She did not have much things <laughs> to aspire for as far as we <laughs> can think of it. Well, things just got much worse. Things just got a lot more difficult. God's favor on Mary did not bring any measure of success or of what we would usually label blessings in her life. If anything, it made her life extremely difficult. So Mary has good reason to be troubled. She has good reasons to be afraid. And we have indications in the stories told us by the gospel writers that her life might have felt more like wilderness than feast. We have Joseph struggling with this story. We have Joseph only taking her in because he had a vision. And we sort of just brush through that, but imagine what that feels like. Think about relationships in your life that you've been through. How does that affect trust? It's difficult, right? It's tough. Matthew tells us of Mary and Joseph having to run away as refugees to Egypt. Because somebody wants to kill the child. What does that do to you as a family, right? It's difficult stuff. It tells us of Jesus staying behind in the temple and then being lost for days. And we find the story cute, you know, 12-year-old Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees. Think of it from the perspective of the mother. We lost sight of our kid once in a flea market for like 10 minutes and we're freaking out. <laughs> Mary, Mary's son, the promised one, is killed like a criminal on a cross. Again, think about the things that we call success and blessing. None of that for Mary. I'm not sure how much this annunciation felt like a feast for Mary. I'm also not so sure how much of a feast it ends up being for us if we don't allow for there to be more to Mary's story than just giving birth to Jesus. Or if we assume that because she gave birth to Jesus, everything else was or felt okay. Life is a lot messier than that, isn't it? And we know that. And a birth is something to be celebrated. But yeah, life isn't more complicated than that. And I was, as I was thinking about this, about this story, I was thinking about this image that we should celebrate this conception. And I was thinking about how does, how does that happen? And if you, you know, we imagine a baby shower or something. And everybody's there and we're supposed to be celebrating 
that this kid is going to come. And in that room, there's people with all kinds of different stories for this, right? Maybe there's a person that has been wanting to have kids for years and just didn't happen. And it hurts to be there, but you got to smile, right? you got to celebrate. This is supposed to be a good thing. You have the one that doesn't want to have kids. And it has to walk into that environment of super social pressure. Keep on justifying themselves. Or you have the ones whose birth stories were very difficult. They have to deal with all of that. Or maybe you're visiting the mother after the birth and she has postpartum depression. She has to pretend that everything is okay. Or we can go away from the birth and just think about our families and our environments and our relationships, our natural families or the families we build for ourselves. It's difficult. Life is messy. But the angel greets her by saying, do not fear. What do we make of that? Do not fear. This expression, it appears other places in the Gospels. Yeah. Luke has it a couple of places. And as a rule, it appears in places where there is anticipation of fear or there is reference to things that do, in fact, bring fear. And it comes from the lip of Jesus. It comes from other places. You have Jesus saying, don't be afraid when he's calling the disciples to follow him. Come, now you will be fisher of men. And we like to think of it as this glorious call, right? They're being asked to leave behind their livelihood and go after this wandering preacher. No salary, you know, no social security, just come, let's do this together. I will be afraid. I would like to think that I would still follow Jesus. I think I would do it in fear, right? I don't know what's going to happen. I like to know. I like to plan. I like to have some sort of assurance, right? No. The story also comes in the healing of the daughter of Jairus. And again, we like the story because we know the ending. The girl is healed. But as Jairus is told by Jesus, don't be afraid, go home, your daughter will be well. He doesn't know that. He has to walk home. How does it feel to walk home wanting but not quite knowing if your daughter is going to be alive when you arrive? And then Jesus tells, again, this to not be afraid. In, in, in Luke, in the story that has its parallel in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about, don't worry, you know, look at the lilies in the field. Yeah, don't worry about tomorrow, about what you're going to build or what you're going to eat. And I want to say, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, of course I got to worry about what I'm going to eat tomorrow, what I'm going to feed my kids. I guess it depends a bit how we read these stories. How do we listen when Paul says that love casts away fear? 
The thing is, I don't believe that these are a reprimand for the fearful, a punishment for fear or something like that. If I think about the story of Mary, I think there's something else. There is an encouragement that fear, not just an encouragement, uh, an an annunciation, a declaration, that fear and wilderness do not imply God's abandonment. That fear and wilderness do not imply God's abandonment. Why does Mary react with perplexity to the angel's greeting, right? Isn't it interesting? The angel comes to her and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Those are good words. And she's like, why does she react with perplexity to that? Perhaps she understood the greeting to anticipate reasons for fear. Like, do not fear. Oh, okay, what should I be afraid of? What's coming? Well, perhaps she didn't see in her life situation good reasons to not fear. And as I imagine Mary going through life, I cannot imagine that her memory or commitment to this story was stable. Right? Because that's what we might think. We might think, okay, there's fear there, but once Jesus is born, she has this miracle baby in her hands, then everything is all right. Well, it's not. She has this visitation from the angel, and then she has nine months in which she's dealing with pregnancy, she's dealing with her relationship with Joseph, she's dealing with what the neighbors are saying, and then she's going through life, and she's having to revisit this and say, was I crazy? Was that really what it was? How does this happen in life? And maybe, she, maybe Mary's human and is wavering, you know? I think she experienced grace, not being cast out, not being stoned. The baby itself, of course, right? The deliverance as being a refugee. It's a tough experience, but she lived. But none of those were, were easy or, or clear cut. But, but I think there's something else in that conversation with the messenger from God. You who are highly favored, you who have found favor. I think maybe the problem is what we understand by finding favor from God, right? And and here I like the translation in Portuguese a lot better. Because it refers to a notion of you who have found grace. You have found grace with God. God has found grace with you. It's a bit different, isn't it? God has found grace with you. God is bringing grace to you. God is inviting you to birth grace into the world. Fear does not imply God's abandonment. Wilderness does not imply God's abandonment. How do we speak of God's presence? What is Mary believing that she can birth into the world?
and I see a different call. The call to birth Jesus into the real world. Of birthing grace into real lives. Of birthing Christ into the middle of our fears and the middle of our realities. And it's interesting how Luke has Mary going from this. And what does she do? She runs to Elizabeth's house. Which is an expression of both hope and fear, isn't it? It's, I have to check if this, if what the angel said checks out. But at the same time, it's this, I want to see this. I want to see what's going on. And in her meeting with Elizabeth, there's this outburst, and we have the Magnificat, in which Mary sings of the grace of God for those who suffer. And I've always found that profoundly moving, that that is what Mary sings about. She sings about a God who is there for those who are broken, for those who are outcast, for those who are suffering. And I've spoken about this just last Advent, how I think Mary had to believe above everything else in grace. That whatever was going on, Whatever was going on in her womb and in her life and in the life of this Jesus whom she birthed and is going around doing all these things she struggles to understand. That there is a possibility of grace. A promise of the presence of God that can transform, that can bring life, and that that can do it in the middle of of our fears and our realities. I think that's what holds you through a life with all its challenges. Mary needed to believe that this God with us, in her, and then with us, meant the possibility of grace for her and beyond her. And that's a story of annunciation that welcomes us in, invites us. Not the question of how does the birth of Jesus change things in a flash, in, in, a, in a flash, right? But what does the birth of grace into the reality of life mean for us? What does it mean for us to allow ourselves to be means through which grace is being birthed and expressed in the world. We speak about that, don't we, about Christ being born in us and us being born in Christ. What does that do to how we deal with our struggles and with our relationships and with the messiness of life? We don't experience very often, do we, that things magically change. But maybe we have experienced and can experience how grace changes things. 
How does it change our messy family relationships? Again, I don't think things were easy for Joseph and Mary. But in the context in which she lived, she was cared for to some extent, right? And there's possibilities, there's, there's, there's room for reconciliation of some sort. I don't think it was easy for Mary to see Jesus die on a cross. But then you have Jesus telling John, John, take care of my mother, right? These expressions in the middle of the reality of life. What do those mean for us and for the wilderness we live in? Now, I don't know. I don't know into what kind of life this annunciation comes for you. I don't know what kind of wilderness you inhabit. But here's the annunciation that God is there, that God can be. That fear does not mean God's abandonment, that he can be present in that. That apparent lack of things does not need to mean God's abandonment. But also, and here it is, right? The story of incarnation is a story of a God who willingness, willingly makes himself present precisely there. That's a gospel for real life. That's a gospel that gives us hope even when things are dry, right? That doesn't demand life to turn around and be perfect and be fine for God to be present. No. The God incarnate is incarnate in this mess of this family. And we believe him to be the face of grace in its most full and wonderful expression. And we say and we sing and we speak and we pray every week that this Christ is present and is with us. And then we walk, right? We walk in our wilderness. We walk in our life. And what does that mean? What can grace look like? In your life? How does it change how you relate to those around you where it's difficult? To yourself when it's difficult? To your own stories? Right? To the things that we just don't manage, to the things that are difficult, to our stories of abandonment or of acceptance? To our stories of lack, of lostness. You who are highly favored. 
I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. Mary, for me, has always been a teacher in faith because she takes it in and lives. And she lives it in her body and she lives it in her life with such a real and down-to-earth faith. God, I don't know. I don't know. This is messy. I don't know how this is going to happen. I'm a virgin. This is not supposed to happen. Okay. Uh, I need to believe that this can be. There is something absolutely wonderful about a God who is willing to come into this kind of life. Ours. The broken kind. The difficult kind. And that we can be a community that believes that grace has space in our lives, in our relationships, in our brokenness, in our wilderness, in our marriages that are tough, like Mary and Joseph, in our stories of birthing or not birthing children that are tough, in our stories of hunger or refugee, or I don't know, they are tough. In our stories of witnessing death of loved ones, they are tough. God is there. And He wants to be with us. That is a feast in the wilderness. That is a table. A table set in the desert, right? In our homes. Here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. And may he bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.